So if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, we have been in a series looking together at this fascinating ancient prophet Daniel. And this morning, we're going to continue on in that series. And it might seem like a little bit of a strange passage for us to be looking at on the first Sunday of Advent, this crazy apocalyptic dream of Daniel. But I think by the end of uh, our teaching today, you'll agree with me that maybe this is a, really a quite appropriate text for the first Sunday of Advent. But let's pray together before we open up God's word. Pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your revelation that you've given to us in your word and in your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask, oh God, that as we consider your word and as we seek to focus our attention on your son, Jesus, that your spirit would be present among us to open up our hearts and our eyes so that we might see you in your glory and majesty and that in seeing you, we might be changed more and more into your likeness. And we ask all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So how did you sleep last night? Anybody have any dreams? Anybody here have any bad dreams? Does anybody have those family members that like to tell you about their bad dreams? Are you that family member? You have a weird dream and you're like, honey, I had this weird dream last night. And you just go on and on. And you're just kind of checked out because you're like, this is not reality. You're just telling me this strange dream. You know, the experts tell us that on average, we dream about two hours every night. And typically toward the end of that dream cycle, we often have nightmares. And nightmares, they say, are sometimes uh, ways in which uh, we deal with um, encounters we had in real life. Other people talk about how negative dreams are threat rehearsals. I guess that means you're rehearsing deep fears that you have in your own mind. But dreams can oftentimes mean nothing, but sometimes dreams can carry meaning. Anybody here ever have a dream that you felt like carried some significance and meaning? I can remember uh, several years ago, my wife and I were shopping for our our first home, and we were looking to buy this house in kind of a sketchy neighborhood in Albuquerque, and we were a little bit concerned about whether or not we should buy this house, and then my wife had a dream. And in her dream, she dreamt of meeting the neighbors and then uh, meeting the owner of the house and kind of visiting with the owner of the house. And it seemed like, you know, just that week, we, we, we show up at the, at the people's house and we meet the neighbors. And then we meet the owner and then the owner invites us into the backyard and we sit down and have a, a cup of tea with her in the backyard. And Alicia's like having deja vu. She's like, I've met these people. I've had this experience before. But you ever have a dream that you felt like carried some kind of significance or meaning and helped you kind of make decisions? Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at that sort of dream, except for this one is way more significant than all of that. This is arguably the most important dream ever in the history of the world. In fact, it is this dream that opens up a window for us into cosmic history. This dream actually was, uh, from this dream, Jesus actually gained the title that, that he, he used to describe himself more than any other title in the Gospels. It's all from this dream. And so this morning, I want to invite you to kind of walk with me through this bizarre apocalyptic dream. And it is somewhat strange. It is it's bizarre, but it is really fascinating and interesting. And you heard it read. And so what I want to do is just kind of briefly rehearse kind of the dream, what Daniel saw. 
And then we want to kind of sit back and see the interpretation of this dream. So let's talk first about the dream. So Daniel, in his night visions, he begins, and there's this dark, ominous, stormy sea. Now, I love a big, stormy sea. But the the Jews in the ancient Near East were not seafaring people. They did not like the ocean. And in many respects, the sea for them communicated a world of chaos, something that that they feared. So they had this deep fear. So already the, the dream begins in this ominous place with this dark, dreary, stormy sea. And then out of the sea start arising these crazy beasts. And the first beast is a lion or it's like a lion, and it's got big eagle's wings. And then after the lion with eagle's wings, another beast comes out. And this one is a bear, and it has three ribs in its mouth. And the word is spoken, arise and devour much flesh. When I read that, I was thinking about uh, a situation I had um, a few weeks ago. I was in Monrovia Canyon, and I was walking down the path with my family, my father-in-law, and there in front of us, about 20 yards away, was this enormous brown bear. And I, I just heard those words of this text in my, vo- in my head, arise and devour much flesh. And I was like, we have got to leave, honey. We got to go, you know. But after the bear with the ribs comes a leopard with four wings and four heads, and it moves swiftly across the earth. And then after the leopard, you know, comes out the most terrifying beast of all. It, it almost sounds like a, like a gigantic elephant, you know, it's stomping and it's crushing everything in its past and it has multiple tusks coming out, actually 10 of them. And one of them eventually becomes this, this horn that has a beady eyes and a big mouth that's speaking arrogant things. And so Daniel sees these four beasts coming out of the dark, primordial, crazy, chaotic, dark, evil waters. And he's freaked out. He's like, what does all of this mean? And look at what it says. In verse 16, somebody told him, I approached one of those who stood there and they asked him the truth concerning this. And he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So what is this dream all about? Verse 17, these four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And so he begins giving us this interpretation And note first, he says that the four beasts are reflective of four kingdoms. And of course, if we've been following and tracking Daniel along throughout the last several weeks, you'll remember that Daniel's book is divided neatly with this structure where chapter two parallels seven, three parallels six, four parallels five. We've talked about this multiple times. But of course, chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a giant statue made of four metals, and those four metals represent four kingdoms. And here again, now Daniel has a dream of four beasts, and these four beasts, according to the text, represent four kingdoms. Now that raises a question, what kingdoms are we talking about here? Can we associate these kingdoms with earthly kingdoms? Does he want us to think about specific leaders and specific rulers? And there's been different answers given to that question. Some say that the four kingdoms are the train of kingdoms that began with the Babylonian kingdom where Daniel lived that moved all the way up to the Seleucid Empire and the horn is the, and the terrifying beast is the, the, the great leader Antiochus Epiphanes who persecuted the Jewish people. 
Others say, no, it's not referring to these events in the past. Instead, it refers to uh, primarily events in the future. And people have written, you know, uh, wildly popular uh, apocalyptic novels based on some of these dreams, like the Left Behind series. Uh, some have, have even created apocalyptic cult classics, like the 1970s movie, A Thief in the Night which when I saw it as a sixth grader, it terrified me for life. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you have a movie to rent over the holidays. Or you could just rent, you know, Kirk Cameron and his uh, Left Behind series. But there's, there's books and movies and popular literature made about this dream. Some, some people say it's all future. Some say it's all past. W what are we talking about here? Well, perhaps what Daniel is referring to are four kingdoms. I think from the vantage point of the New Testament, it seems like we can view the fourth kingdom as the Roman Empire. The first beast is the Babylonian Empire. The second beast, the Grecian Empire, or the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, the third beast is the Grecian Empire, which like a leopard that grows and spreads quickly, this empire grew and spread quickly underneath the great leadership of Alexander, who within 10 years conquered all the way from India to Egypt, the then known world. And then his kingdom, like the leopard that had four heads, his kingdom was broken into four parts after his death with his four main generals. And then following the, the, the Grecian Empire, the next major world empire was Rome. And it was under Rome that the children of Israel ultimately would suffer the most. And it was under Rome that the representative king and leader and Messiah, Jesus, would come and suffer most. And so it seems that Daniel does want to give us, in some sense, a prophetic overview of world history. But I want to suggest that Daniel is doing something more than just giving us a prophetic overview of human history with these four beasts. Daniel is telling us something about the nature of human government and of human empires. You see, if you want to just give somebody history in advance, you could just tell them history in advance. You could just tell them, well, here's what's going to happen. First, there's going to be this kingdom, and then this kingdom, and then this kingdom, and then this kingdom, and then there's going to be a wicked ruler that's going to persecute the people. You could say that. But he doesn't give us simply didactic statements. Instead, he gives us these crazy apocalyptic images. Why? Well, I think what he's doing is he's telling us something about the nature of human history and of human government. You know, it's interesting. Daniel 2 gives us, in some ways, a more benign picture of human governments. You have a big statue. It's beautiful. It's orderly. It's made of precious metals. And human government can oftentimes feel that way. I mean, aren't you glad you live in a nation of laws and there's a police force to protect us and there are borders that, that protect us? And aren't you glad of human government? You can respond. And certainly human government can be good. But Daniel also tells us that human government can look beastly. You see, God commits power into the hands of people, but that power can be abused and misused, and it often has at the hands of the leaders. Daniel, in some sense, in chapter seven, is giving us a history of human government from the vantage point of those who have been exploited and oppressed and abused by that government. 
These beasts that Daniel gives us are these weird amalgamation of different creatures. And uh, I was talking to my daughter about this, and uh, she, she suggested that maybe what Daniel's referring to are in this text are ligers uh, from Napoleon Dynamite. Anybody here know about the ligers from Napoleon Dynamite? But I thought about this, this is Napoleon's drawing. If you haven't seen Napoleon Dynamite, then after you watch A Thief in the Night, you can go home and watch Napoleon Dynamite over the holidays, Christmas time only. It's a great show to watch. And, um, but in the book of Leviticus, there's this warning about mixing breeds. Because a mixed breed is a violation of God's created order. So to, to take a tiger and mix it with a lion, even if it's, in a, if it's in an effort, as Napoleon thought it was, to extract its magical powers, according to the book of Leviticus, you shouldn't do that. And in some ways, you're mixing with the divine order within creation. And I think he's giving us these pictures of beasts to show us that what we're looking at here is human government gone awry. It is Human government is, is supposed to be humane. God originally created mankind and gave us the mandate to be fruitful and multiple, multiply and to fill the earth and to rule over it, to exercise God's rule in God's world. But instead of exercising humane and good leadership that served the human community, that led to human flourishing, that protected the rights of the marginalized and the oppressed and, and those who, who, who didn't have, instead, Governments have used power to exploit and oppress. And this exploitation, this oppression, this abusive use of power comes to a head in Daniel's vision with the fourth creature. And Daniel, look at what verse 19, he wants to know about this fourth creature. Look at verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all of the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze. Notice this beast is unusual because it's part beast and it's part industrial products. Iron teeth, claws of bronze, that is unnatural. And this beast devoured and broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about 10 and, and about the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before the three of them, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than his companions. You know, I heard this one I was thinking about. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings, there's a creature called the Oliphant, which is this weird uh, elephant-like creature that was used for warfare. And this image just kind of was what I was picturing when I was thinking about this beast. It's frightening, isn't it? Could you imagine meeting one of those in your dreams? And this is Daniel, so he wants to know about it naturally. Tell me about this beast. What, what are we to make of this? And look at what it says, verse 23. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and put down three kings, and he shall speak words against the Most High, and look at verse 25, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the laws, and they shall be given over into his hand for a time, times, and a half a times." 
So Daniel is troubled because he sees this beast and this beast is doing violence to his brothers and sisters in Israel. And he wants to know, what am I to make of this beast? But then Daniel says, he saw something else. This is not just a vision of four beasts coming up out of the sea. In this vision, there is the Ancient of Days and he's seated on the throne and he's on this throne with flames and there's the books that are open before him and the court sits in judgment and the power of those beasts is ripped out of their hands and taken away and then authority is taken and it's given over to one like the Son of Man. And this is his dream. Now, what are we to make of this dream? I want to suggest that the most important way to read this dream is through the lens of Jesus. Because Jesus actually refers to this dream and he refers to language in this dream almost as much as he refers to anything else in the Old Testament. And don't you think if the most significant influential figure in the history of the world was constantly referring back to this dream that you and I should know what his thoughts on it were? And there's a very significant place in the Gospels where Jesus refers to this passage of Scripture. You see, very often, as we think about this, we think, oh, these are human governments, and then there's this figure that arises, and this figure becomes persecuting of the people of God. He's speaking boastful things about them. This is the horn. This is the great horned beast that's terrifying. It's the robo-beast. It's the crazy beast. It's threatening. It's ominous. And Jesus refers to this on the last night of his life before he goes to the cross. And he's standing on trial before the high priest, and the high priest is now trying to marshal the authority of Rome in order to have Jesus unjustly tried and put to death. And Jesus is standing before him, and the high priest, in in exasperation, says, well, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus said, you said so. It's a very Jesus-y thing to say. And he says, tell us plainly. And he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the glory. And he's referring to Daniel. Now, he's saying these words to a Bible scholar. The Bible scholars knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. In some sense, it would be like if you went to a Star Wars convention and you were dressed up in a black suit with a black mask and you were walking around going like this, and you walked up to somebody and you said, I am your father. Who would they be playing? What role would they be playing? Darth Vader. And if Darth Vader is saying, I am your father, then what role are they saying you're playing? Luke Skywalker. And here Jesus says, I am the son of man who has come on the clouds of heaven to receive authority from the beasts over all kingdoms and nations and peoples. When he says that, who is he putting the high priest in the place of? The horned beast. 
He's saying, look, whatever manifestation that this horned beast takes, whether it be in Antiochus Epiphanes in the Seleucid Empire in 167 BC, or it's the Roman Empire in the first century BC, or it's some other empire in the history of the world that takes on its place the, 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 the power and abuses it and starts putting people to death, especially God's people to death. They are playing the role of the horned beast. And Jesus says to the high priest, you're playing the wrong role because I am the son of man that you have been waiting for. So I think this is what Jesus is doing with this Old Testament text. And now what I wanna ask though is what are we supposed to do with this text? Can we just talk about that for a little bit? So I, I want us just to talk for a minute about what I think this has to teach us about our own world and about our own personal lives and about what God has done in this world and for our sakes in Jesus Christ. And the first thing that I think this text is teaching us is it's teaching us something about the beasts. It's telling us that in our lives we will experience the beastly misappropriation and misuse of power. Now, of course, this has immediate application for Christians in the world today, and there are many of them who are being persecuted and thrown in jail, and their rights are taken away, and they're being tortured, and they're being abused, and some put to death for their faith had dinner a couple months back with a dear friend of mine who's a pastor from Turkey, Turkish guy, and he told the story of being thrown in prison and being tortured by the authorities for his faith in Jesus Christ. So in our world today, there are believers who have fallen underneath the authority of the beast. And in some way, in a world where many times people like to speak optimistically, and in churches like ours, we like to come together and sing happy songs, and I don't know about you, but I'm a very optimistic person. And when conversations start to go to a negative place, you know what I do typically? I try to redirect the conversation into a positive place because I just don't want to go there. Well, here in the dream, God allows his people to go there. And he pulls off the mass of the empires and he exposes it for what it is, a wicked beast that's abusing his people. So he's naming the truth about the abuse of power by human governments, but governments are not the only institutions that abuse power and become beasts, are they? Very often, fathers and priests and mothers and CEOs and managers and bosses can abuse their power and can actually become beastly. My mom, when she was four years old, her, her father died, and then within a year, her mom remarried a man who was a very winsome, charming physician, and he was this kind of guy who, uh, he had this great bedside manner, all of, his all of his patients loved him, he was gregarious, he was kind of funny, but he was also an alcoholic, and he was a, he was a very, very mean drunk. My mom has memories of walking down the stairs and seeing her stepfather there with his wristwatch wrapped around his fist, beating up my grandmother. The one who God had created as his image bearer to wield the authority and power of being a father in a way that cared for and protected his family had become a beast. 
And he's not alone. And some of you have known the experience of abuse by the beasts. And God in his word wants to speak truth about our experience and expose that for what it is and say, yes, I know the world is not the way it's supposed to be. This is a twisting of my design for human power and human rule and fathers and governments and priests. It is not supposed to be that way. But that raises a second question. What is God going to do about the beasts? And this text answers that question for us. And the first thing that I want you to see that God is going to do about the beasts is number one, this, this dream reveals to us that God will judge the beasts. Notice verse nine, he says, and I looked and thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels of burning fire, and a stream of fire issued from it. And a thousands, thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Notice it is while these beastly governments are coming on the scene and beastly powers are coming out and doing their thing that the Ancient of Days is standing there with the books open and the court is seated in judgment. Have you ever had the experience of being exposed because you were doing something embarrassing and you didn't know somebody was watching you? Several years ago, back when I was in high school, I have this memory because... It must have created embarrassment and shame for me of being in my bedroom and, and my bedroom um, had a window that if you were walking to the door of the house, you could walk by the bedroom of my window. And we had a Bible study on Thursday nights. And typically, I, I loved the Bible study at our house on Thursday nights. And so I was getting ready. And as I did, and as many, and probably most of you do, you know, before Bible study, I was there, I was getting ready and I was dancing in front of the mirror. You know, you don't just dance, right? You gotta dance in front of the mirror so that you can work on your moves, right? Eric, I mean, you're a dancer, I can tell. You do that a lot, I know. And many of you do the dance thing, right? This is a place where we can speak truth together, can't we? So I was there, you know, I was, I was working, I, I don't know what kind of move I was doing, but anyway, I was working some move, and then, and then I, I, all of a sudden I had this feeling that I was being watched. And I turned around and there was a group of four or five girls that I was wanting to impress that were there giggling and laughing at me. And at that moment, I had to make that decision. Do I go along with it and pretend like I knew they were there the whole time and I was trying to dance? And so then I just went full out in it like, oh yeah, you, you, right? Listen, the kingdoms of this world the beastly rulers who are abusing their power think they can keep dancing along and nobody sees it. But God sees and God knows. God does not stand afar off and watch us from a distance, but God sees all and knows all and he cares. He cares about what's happening in your life. He cares about what's happening in your home. He cares about what happened to you when you were a kid. God knows and God cares. And what this text reveals to us is that the books will be open and God will strip the beasts of their power and authority and they will, he will bring to an end the abuse. He will bring to an end the beastly exhibition of power. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
I know and God knows all about what leads abusers to become abusers. You know, oftentimes, you know, before the Grinch stole Christmas, you know, he had a hard life in an orphanage or something. You know, that's why his heart grew so small. And there's always reasons, and God knows all of that, but the point is not that God judges without mercy or compassion. The point is, is that God will put an end to the, to the beastly rule of power in this world. But not only will he judge the beast, but secondly, I want you to see that after he strips the beasts of their power, God will transfer rule and authority to one like the Son of Man. Look at what it says in verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages shall serve him. To him was given a kingdom and all authority that all nations and peoples should serve him. You know, Jesus before the high priest said, I am and you will see the son of man coming on the clouds. After his resurrection, after he suffers and is vindicated by the Father in his resurrection, Jesus stands before his disciples, he stands before us all, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Referring back to this passage, the transfer of rule and power and authority has already begun. Jesus has been exalted to the highest seat of cosmic authority. He now stands as the king over every king, the Lord over every power, the power over every power. The transfer of authority has already happened. And it happened in his crucifixion and in his resurrection and in his exaltation to the Father's right hand. Now I know what some of you might be thinking. And it's a fair question. If God has transferred authority to the Son of Man, then why is it that the beasts continue? Why is it that their lives are prolonged for a time and a half? Why is it that they keep seeming like they're running the show? Why is it that over the last 150 years, there has been more bloodshed as a result of beastly human government than there ever has been in the history of the world? But I want you to think with me. Jesus said my kingdom is not of this world. And what he meant was not that my kingdom is not for this world. He meant that my kingdom doesn't originate with the ways and the values of this world. Jesus does exercise rule and authority and it's powerful and it's healing and it's saving and it's happening in the world today. But he doesn't exercise it the way the kingdoms of this world do through their militaries and through their fear mongering. And check this out, I mean, just think with me. I'm like, even though Jesus never held a political office or commanded an army or sent out ever one tweet, even though Jesus was never a Rhodes Scholar, he never had large sums of money, he never traveled outside of his own little small geographical area in Palestine, and even though this Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter who died the death of a slave, even though he never had any of that, he has inspired more architectural and artistic feats of beauty. 
He has inspired the composition of more music, ranging from Bach to Bono, from Beethoven all the way to Kanye West. He has influenced more movements, ranging from Bishop Desmond Tutu's Reconciliation Committee, Commission in South Africa, to the nonviolent resistance of Gandhi, to the civil rights leadership of Dr. King and all the other pastors, to the abolitionists Wilberforce and Frederick Douglass. I mean, the sheer force of this compelling personality from Nazareth has commanded and evoked more love and devotion than, than Napoleon or Alexander or Nebuchadnezzar or any of the Caesars combined ever evoked from humanity. His words have been translated into more languages. His ethical ideals have led to the start of more hospitals and schools and orphanages and social safety nets. His ideas have led to more philosophical and theological reflection and academic dissertations and poetry. His transforming love has freed more people from the fear and destructive power of addictions and self-hatred and despair and shame. And here's the thing. The kingdom of God has only just been inaugurated in Jesus. We've only seen just the trickle of the full flood of what God's healing rule will do when the curtain is pulled back and Jesus is revealed to this world as its true king. And so on Advent, we say, oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come again and claim this world for yourself. I mean, this is the hope of Advent. The kingdom of God has come and the kingdom of God will come, and the kingdom of God even now is breaking into this world in small and humble and self-serving ways or in self-sacrificing ways to bring God's love to bear to every tribe and nation and people all across this globe. And listen, his rule is, it's powerful. The authority of the beast has really been stripped away and it's been given to Jesus. And that's why the great martyrs in the history of the church, even when they looked down the face of being burned at the stake or being crucified on a cross or being thrown to lions, they've done so with courage and bravery saying, you can take my life, sure you can, kill me if you want, but you cannot rob from me the kingdom of God that's been inaugurated in Jesus. Take my life and God's love and his power is stronger than your ability to kill. He raises the dead and he will make all things new. He has stripped the beasts of their most potent weapon, which is the fear of death. And you know, he has stripped the beasts of their power to define you and your past. You know, some of you, you have experienced like beastliness through verbal abuse and physical abuse in your own life and you've been taken advantage of and, 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 and you just, you're, 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 you feel in many ways defined and characterized by what's been done to you from the beast. But I'm here to tell you that there is a power stronger than the power of the beast, and it is the power of the reconciling, healing love of the Son of Man, whose, whose humane and loving rule has broken into this world to free you from the, that, that brief moments in the history of time of abuse 
And he has set upon you an eternal defining love. And it is his word over your life that is truer. It is his power that is stronger. It is his verdict on you that is more defining than anything that beasts have done to you. And so live with the verdict of the Son of God over your life. The power has been stripped and the rule of the beast has been given to the Son of Man. But there's one last thing I just need you to see in this text. What will God do with the beast? Number one, ultimately, he will stand in judgment and open the books and expose the beast. Number two, he will strip them of their power and he has transferred authority to Jesus Christ, the true son of man, the true humane ruler over all creation. But finally, what has God done? God has also entered into the world of the beasts. You know, it's interesting, if you look back at our text, some of you will notice this, and you probably saw this in the reading, but in the dream, Daniel sees one like the son of man. But then as the dream is interpreted, the son of man is identified as the saints of the most high God. And it is the saints of the most high God who are persecuted by the horned beast and who are, who are basically oppressed and marginalized and taken advantage of for a time, times, and a half a times. And when Jesus identified himself as the son of man, he was saying, I am your representative. I have come into the world to stand in your place. And even as the saints in this vision are given over to the Gentiles for a times, times, and a half a times, Jesus says the son of man will be given over to the Gentiles for three days and three nights. You see, Jesus came into the world so that we might not be alone in our suffering, so that we might have one who knows us and our experience down because he has walked in our shoes, he has been among us. The word, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he enters into our pain. He enters into the suffering of Israel underneath the thumbprint of Rome so that by not responding to evil with evil, to the sword with the sword, but instead to respond to the sword and to this fierce use of power with the power of sacrificial self-giving love, he might ultimately break the power of the beasts and render them powerless ultimately and inaugurate his kingdom, which has come and will ultimately come in all of its fullness in the, in the future. Amen? Let's pray together now. Our great God and Father, we come to you with thanksgiving and praise because you have been victorious over the beasts in this world. You have been victorious over the beasts and the beastly impulse in our own hearts. And you have stripped the beasts of their power and you have given all authority in heaven and on earth to your son, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you have used your authority to rescue and to heal and to bring freedom and hope and life. And I pray that even now as we close out our service with our final song, as we share together in the bread and the cup, would you renew our hope in the life that you have brought to us in your death and resurrection. 
And we ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.